Are you are you are you sure you want to broadcast? <laughs> yeah, I, I push I push the big green it's button. Broadcasting right now. Oh right, yeah. Okay, hey, hello everybody. My name's uh, John F. McDropout. I'm joined with uh, uh, Eddie uh, and uh, Gibran, uh, Epicurious A Greek and uh, Gibran Ludwig. Uh, together we make Sophia X Nilo, uh, and also we're hoped to j be joined by Elijah Lees, I believe. Uh, I think the last thing we heard from him was that he was going to uh, join us, but. No word from him yet. Um, so uh, today we are planning on uh, going into our third discussion of uh, d discussion dialogues concerning natural religion. Is that is that how you say it? It's 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 uh the it's our dialogues concerning the dialogues concerning natural religion. Right, exactly. We're having uh, we're having our third our third run at it here and trying to get um, all the way through it. I guess. I mean, this thing is pretty pretty massive and there's quite a bit in it. Um, I think we got up to about part nine last time. Uh, and uh, I don't know. Do we need to uh, you know, maybe summarize what what's happened so far or who's involved in this or? I mean, did you guys just want to jump into it? I think we should just jump into it. I mean, if we're on the third part now and people might be a bit confused on what we're doing, I'd, I'd suggest you guys uh, stop watching this now. Go to the past episodes, watch those, and you can catch this on the recording because that's the great thing about YouTube. Oh, great. We've all, we've gone all the way down to zero viewers now. Ah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> excellent. So, uh, yeah, no, totally. I'm... Uh, I mean, this this is a dialogue by David Hume. Um, it was published at the uh, posthumously, wasn't it? Um, no, it was published a few months before. Before he, died, he okay, so it, it was, was you know, right before he died. One of his one of his final works, um, or at least one of his final published works. And he was working on it for twenty years before it was published. <laughs> cool. Um, okay, so this dialogue has a, a three different characters in it. Uh, Cleanthes, um, the natural religionist, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. um, Demia, uh, who's sort of, uh, I mean, what would you call him? Um, a uh, igtheist, uh, maybe? I, I would call him maybe a, well, I guess the dialogue describes him as being very orthodox, so I guess we can go with that. Not, not as in, like, Eastern Orthodox, but as in being very very Christian. Yeah, I mean, uh, all the all the people in here sort of proclaim to be uh, religious in some in some sort. So, I mean, I guess you could say that they all kind of claim to be Christian in in the context of the dialogue. But um, I think um, Philo, the final character, he's the uh, the philosophical philosophical skeptic, right? Um, I think well, that's how he self describes himself, anyways. And uh, it seems like he has. Um, what am I looking for? He um, he sort of is the one who's kind of spurring the dialogue back and forth here a little bit. Um, it uh, seems like, it seems like he's a little. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely the antagonizer in this thing, and uh, he he does have a lot of the dialogue. Um, I would say probably the majority of the text. I don't know if you guys felt that too. It's it's kind of hard to judge. There is there is quite a bit from each each character, but um, I feel like he does have like quite a bit of dialogue in it. Yeah, I guess he's the one who's providing a lot of exposition and uh, criticism throughout it. So it would be expected, especially if Hume is trying to construct a character to throw in his point of view. So I think it is. I think that is the case, but it's to be expected. Huh. Uh, yeah, I'm not entirely convinced this character is totally representative of Hume, though. Um, but he seems definitely like the closest to the three. But I don't, I don't know, know enough about what Hume actually believed, and I don't think anyone knows enough about what Hume actually believed other than maybe Hume or someone who has access to, like, his journals or something, which 
would be yeah, I mean, in my in my small amount of reading of Hume, I would say that I mean skepticism does seem to be pretty central to his um, ideas. Um, sure. I would say I would say that's 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 a fairly um, it runs it runs throughout most of his work. I would say um, yeah. so so I guess you could say that probably Philo does represent some of what he believes, anyways. Oh, absolutely, billiard, yeah, 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 exactly. A billiard ball hits a billiard ball. You can't explain that. Yeah, okay. that's true. That's it. Sorry. Okay, you know yeah, I should not. I should yeah. not have conflated Bill O'Reilly with David Hume. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to ask you. Is that a Fox News reference? It was. Um, cool. He once said, "You can't explain how the tides work." Anyway, but let's just Wait. move on. <laughs> I can't explain it. Um, so something about the moon. Yes, it's the moon. Well, I <laughs> moon can't explain that either. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, sorry. Yeah, let's so, not go digress. Yeah, I mean, okay. Um, so that's sort of a, a pretty good summary of uh, kind of where we're sitting, anyways. Um, at, at this point, we've kind of run through a lot of a. Uh, an analogy as far as as far as it goes, um, sort of into we, we did sort of the idea of God being a, like a human mind and how we could we could kind of come to that analogy, and then we also went into the idea of um, the world being clearly designed and and the fact that that would provide us with some sort of um, um, analogy to to a designer, right? Um, and uh, also, you know, there was there was the idea of the world as an animal or the world as a vegetable. Um, y yes. I mean, there was there were some really interesting uh, things in there. That's for sure. Um, and so so that kind of brings us right up. As soon as we kind of get into that, um, or once we get past that, and they sort of um, they sort of move into uh, Demia actually brings up the idea of well, I mean, all these arguments are a posteriori, and that um, he uh, before us we'd better simply adhere to the sublime argument a priori. Um, and he, from there, he kind of makes uh, the a priority argument, um, and uh, he he kind of goes on about the you know the features of the a priori argument and how like it's sort of it's so sublime and mysterious that it's sort of you know it'll, it kind of answers itself and uh, it gives us the assurance of the attributes um, just in its uh, definition and stuff. Um, but it's it's Cleanthes who actually comes up and uh, and points out. That um that you know these this mysteriousness of the a priori argument is sort of the weakness of it you know um you know you're, you're claiming it as an advantage but and a convenience but it's sort of um it, it kind of doesn't allow you to have full proof or full solidity of the proof um and uh, I mean did you guys um what do you I mean what do you guys think about when when you hear about like the argument a priori I mean I kind of I thought about um just the idea of cause and effect right um that seemed to be what he was, what he was talking about, but I don't, I don't really understand really what he's referring to. Like it seems like he knows what he means, but um, I would, if I had to guess, I'd probably say he's likely referring to the ontological argument. Um, I would actually like to preface it by saying uh, where we are in, in history, just to bring up the context. Um, in Hume's time, he there was a lot of notions of there being innate knowledge, you know, things that we just know out of our intuitions and we know them to be true because, well, because, well, the world needs to presuppose these before anything can function. So let's say, for example, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Now, no matter how many times we'll tr we try this equation out, it, we know the outcome. You don't even need to get off your couch. You, you, can just, you can just think of certain equations and you could know them just by your rational observation and decoding of them because you know the rules of mathematics, uh, for example, uh, logical inferences too. Uh, if P then Q, P Q. You know, modus ponens. Uh, basically, things of this nature. 
And what they argued were, was that these are just inherent parts of the universe. They exist in some way through uh, reason, observation, so on and so forth. And these are truths you know just uh, by thinking about them. You don't need to go out and do an experiment. You don't need to go out and add two apples with two apples. They're just true. So Demia is trying to put God in this context. You don't need to go out and observe nature. You don't need to go and uh, liken nature to an, to an animal or to a plant. You, it's just intuitively obvious that God exists as well as all these other attributes. So I think that's where Demia is trying to line it up in terms of the historical context, in terms of how they perceived uh, this kind of information. Now, Hume being someone who was very skeptical of a priori knowledge actually tried to, and an empirist actually tried to show that these truths are things that we come by, not through, um, not by innately knowing this, but through observation, all of it. And that's a tradition that goes to Locke. It's the empiricistic model that all truths that you know come by the, ra come by rational observation. Uh, John Locke had the tabula rasa, which is essentially the notion that if you, if uh, someone was born and they had no eyesight, no ears, no, nothing that they could observe the world and they were just maybe floating in midair for all eternity, they would know absolutely nothing. They wouldn't even have a concept of the self. So that's essentially where uh, he's trying to go with, the, uh, that's essentially where Demi is trying to go a priori in terms of discussing God, and that's the issue Hume's trying to uh, tackle uh, from his empiricistic uh, model of the world. Hmm. So that is that a, that's a description of an a a priori um, type of of reasoning then. Yeah, exactly. So what Demi is trying to do is say, look, we don't even need to go out into the world and do this a posteriori. We don't need to make observations about nature, liking it to some machine or some animal. This is just intuitively obvious, and because it's intuitively obvious and we can just assume it beforehand, we don't need to make any arguments and therefore the matter, matter is settled. Yeah, okay. I, I, I can see that. So it's it's sort of, um, you know, it's it's like almost un, undisputed truth uh, or an undisputed um, premise in the with, with the argument, right? Um, something that you sort of can, can kind of just take on as, you know, the opposite being absurd? Uh, precisely. And essentially, what this is where uh, Demian tries to go with the one in uh, the verse 140. The argument, uh, replied Demian, which I insist on, is the common one. Whatever exists must have a cause or reason of its existence. It's a being absolutely impossible for anything to produce itself or to be the cause of its own existence. It's in mounting up, therefore, from effects to causes. We must either go on in tracing an infinite succession without any ultimate cause at all, or we must at least have some resource to some ultimate cause that is necess necessarily existent. So mm -hmm. essentially saying, look, we can either just go for an infinite number of eternal past uh, causes, or we could just uh, decide to settle on this ultimate cause necessarily. And we should just assume it. That way we don't run in. We don't need to go on to this other uh, uh, side, which he would argue is more absurd than the other. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, um, I don't know, his, his argument after that sort of takes a weird turn about, you know, but that the that if we go on tracing an infinite succession, um, is it, 
it says is not determined or caused by anything and yet is evident that it requires a cause or reason as much as any particular object which begins to exist in time. Um, the question is still reasonable why this particular succession of causes existed from eternity and not any other succession or no succession at all. Um, if there no, be no necessarily existent being, any supposition which can be formed is equally possible. Uh, uh, nor is there any more absurdity in nothing's having existed from eternity than there is that something, oh, that, that uh, in that succession of causes which constitutes the universe. Exactly. Why is there something rather than nothing, which is the very main crux of his argument. So by insisting that God has to exist, otherwise the question becomes... Um, unanswerable and thus out of touch um, needs to happen. So in order to get from why is there something rather than nothing, we must assume that God is that something that keeps us away from that nothing. He must exist. He necessarily exists. And if he did not necessarily exist, we would not, we could logically be in that nothing. And why are we in, and that question becomes unanswerable. Hmm. Or we have no sufficient reason to assume. Uh, to assume as such, and this is uh, if, and this is where Cleanthes comes in. Cleanthes, who um, himself is a is a believer, who's who was arguing for the belief in God before, hates a priori arguments. He's he's for the a posteriori approach. He wants to prove that God exists through empirical and undoubtable observations within nature, and to which he says. Though I know that your starting objection is this chief delight, he's referring to Philo, yeah. to point out the weakness of this metaphysical reasoning, it seems to me so obviously ill-grounded, and at the same time of so little consequence to the cause of true piety and religion, that I myself shall venture to sow its fallacy. Now for Cleanthes, religion is very reasonable. You don't need faith. You, you can, it's something you could come to just by observation. So he's going to dismantle the whole a priori approach right here. And he and as he says, nothing that is distinctly conceivable implies a contradiction. Whatever we conceive as existent, we can also conceive as non existent. So we could you could anyone can conceive of God existing, but it's just as possible that God doesn't exist. These two make make just about as much sense as one another. So it doesn't really answer the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Because why is there God rather than not God? That's that's just as much that's just as much of a a crawl in your as much of a problem for the theist as it is the non-believer. So this is where he's essentially starting off with uh, in terms of uh, his critique of uh, Demia's arguments. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's an interesting critique. You know, he says, um, consequently, there is no being whose existence is demonstrable. Um, I thought, I thought that was a weird that was a weird way of putting it. But I mean, is he really just referring to it as a priori? There's no being that can be yeah. a priori demo demonstrated. Yeah, I think that is. Um, I actually think this is a terrible objection, personally. Uh, he he's just flatly saying, well, no, of course one could imagine any being to not exist, and I mean that's the point of the ontological argument is that you can't do that with God if if the argument holds. I don't think it does hold. I think there are legitimate criticisms um, to be made. He's not making the ontological argument. At least I don't think so. I think he absolutely is, though, when he's saying it has to be imagined as necessary. Mm -hmm. And could not be imagined to be non-existent. I mean, that's that's I think what Demea is at least referencing. Um, 
But I, I get. I mean, he he might not be making that argument so much as just referring to it. That's yeah. I mean, I mean, he calls the it uh, the necessarily existent being who carries the reason of his existence in himself, and who cannot be supposed not to exist without an express contradiction. Yeah, that's um, that's the that's the line that makes me think he's referring to the uh, ontological argument. Yeah, that I, that's I, I kind of highlighted it just because that seemed like right where he was getting to the uh, you know the meat of it, right? Um, that I mean that because they've defined the deity as having the reason for his own existence within himself, or not requiring um, a cause, I suppose uh, that that is the one being that is the the end of the um, the uh, chain of events, or the you know the infinite uh, regression. Well, they wouldn't they wouldn't have defined him that way, but they would say that that is a logical consequence of the ontological argument, presumably. Okay. Yeah, but I don't think he's arguing for, um, depending on which way you take the ontological argument, I don't think he's really criticized, he's really attacking the um, um, logical necessity, and I'm just going to go into different types of necessity just for our viewers. Uh, hopefully some of you are still left, and I'm sorry to have scared anyone off. <laughs> the, the three kinds of necessities are... Necessity out of brute fact, something just is that had no cause to it, but it's not, but it's not contradictory to say it wouldn't have been. That's just necessity out of brute fact. Uh, the second one is metaphysical necessity, which just essentially means that as a as a metaphysical being, such a thing could have been imagined to, such a thing has to exist because of what it is, according according to that notion. So me or you could be could be uh, existent or non-existent depending on the amalgamation of our particles or or the form in which we take so on and so forth. And that's uh, that's too big an issue to take on directly, but hopefully that sums it up. And logical necessity is by the rules of by the rules of logical inference, something has to exist. So for example, equations two plus two equals four to coin. That cannot be logically denied in any uh, possible world or any world uh, we could come up with. So I think the onto so ontological arguments usually try to get into the logical necessity, whereas metaphysical necessity is something that that I think Hume is trying to show doesn't make sense. Not necessarily logical necessity. Um, well, when he says cannot be conceived of to not exist, uh, or when Anselm does, and then when it gets paraphrased here, that is completely about logical necessity. Conception has to do with logic, not metaphysics. And so to, to be able to conceive of something is to say that, well, it's logically self-consistent. And, and if what he's saying, what Anselm says is true, and I don't think it is, that not God is logically self or is logically inconsistent, um, then, well, then, then, then it is logically necessary. Yeah, logical um, necessity. And and so by saying, yeah, uh, yeah, but by saying though that 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 he cannot be conceived of to not exist, um, he is saying that it's logically necessary. He he isn't just talking about metaphysical necessity. He's talking about both. Um, uh, Demia. Well. Both of them, really. I mean, Cleanthes is is, is critiquing um, logical necessity when he says any being can be thought of to not exist, and I mean that's I think that's just a bold assertion, and I I I it's probably the case, but he he boldly asserts it as his attack on it. And I think that that's ridiculous <laughs> to to do that. Um, 
especially for a skeptic like Hume, that just seems irresponsible. But that's that's just <laughs> me. Well, <clears throat> I mean, he does say, um, you know, um, it's where, where does he say it? Um, a, uh, I mean, Clancy says that. Um, it is evident that this can never happen while our faculties remain the same as at present. It will still be possible for us at any time to conceive of the non-existence of what we formerly conceived to exist. Nor can the mind ever lie under a necessity of supposing any object to remain always in being in the same manner as we lie under a necessity of always conceiving twice two to be four. Um, and I think I think there is. I don't know. If, I don't know if that's if that's really. I mean, that's that's really the the crux of his criticism, isn't it? That. Um, that the, the that type of necessity isn't the same sort of necessity. Well, I mean, it's certainly it might be a misuse of the word see, necessity. The thing is, I, I would I, the, the, this is why I I find this frustrating is because I mean, like someone like Leibniz would say uh, that that everything is logically necessary because God is logically necessary. We live in the most perfect world. God would only create the most perfect world. Therefore, everything that exists is logically necessary. We couldn't imagine it any other way. Um, we couldn't self-consistently imagine it any other way. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I would I would I'd say he genuinely has to challenge that rather than just asserting, well, of course we can imagine it some other way. What he's well, saying he's is intuitively... Exactly, well, he's not essentially going after Leibniz here. Uh, he's going after... Uh, Leibniz, I think, would be, uh, would be more of a rationalist in terms not necessarily... Uh, uh, someone who himself would try to prove God a priori, but not necessarily someone like uh, Demias, who is more or less who. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what Demias thinks, though, because he's using the same kind of argument that Leibniz is using. He he's using the same kind of argument that Anselm is using. So what actually the character thinks is kind of irrelevant here. I mean, what what, what the differences between these characters' theologies are. What what matters though is that the the particular statement is the same. The particular statement that he's critiquing is the same. That it is impossible to not conceive of God, or to conceive of God to not exist. I mean, that's that's the central contention of all ontological arguments. Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting, like, right? Like, um, I, I think, <clears throat> I'm not sure if he, if he especially says that it's, um, that he's really referring to like that sort of argument, but I think well, um, yeah, I think it's very clear that he's he's addressing it. Um, yeah, I mean he, but they use the language from it very precisely, and so I mean either he isn't addressing it and he's addressing something else and doing that incompetently, or he's addressing the ontological argument. He, he's either making it unclear as to what he's actually addressing, which demonstrates that he's failed to address that at least in the eyes of the viewers or he's addressing the ontological argument and I don't think his his, his disagreement with it is very good um, personally but but, but he says here unless the contrary uh, Clancy says unless a contrary implies a contradiction now in terms of now in terms of what Demi has offered he's not shown that denying God implies a contradiction like well I don't, I don't think he makes uh, the ontological argument here, and what he does is he just goes back and back and back and says, "Look, we're either going to have an infinite chain of causes here, or we could just assume, or we could just make the rational decision and just assume that something has its own existence, because obviously we are either going to have something or nothing. So God has its own existence. He hasn't said 
a logic. He doesn't. He hasn't said that it logically has to happen. No, he did though. He said that it couldn't be conceived of to not exist or something in that vein. I mean, unless I completely misread it, he did say that. He didn't focus on it. His primary point was metaphysical necessity, but he did mention logical necessity, and Hume attacked logical necessity through Cleanthes. Uh, and or at least Cleanthes did, and Cleanthes didn't do very a very good job of it. That's what I'm talking. About. I think he would uh, argue metaphysical necessity because no, but he when he says that that any being can be conceived of to not exist, he's expressly referring to logical necessity. Though that's that is very explicitly what he's referring to. I mean that that would mean nothing to metaphysical necessity. That they're, they're they're two very different concepts. I, if he is addressing metaphysical necessity, he's doing an even worse job of it than addressing logical necessity. Uh, I I mean I I, I don't. Maybe okay, well, he is, here, um, for for my edification, let's. Uh, can you guys define or Jermon or or Eddie? Could you guys define um, metaphysical necessity and logical necessity? Um, is there is there a brief way I, I to? I can define kind of logical necessity. But I don't think metaphysical necessity is a particularly coherent concept. But that is that is a, a, a different argument for another time. But uh, logical necessity just means that it is an it it is it is a result of um, it is a result of properly applying our rules of inference, not even to anything, just to themselves to an extent. So so when when um, when Anselm goes through the ontological argument, he starts with the definition of God just the greatest conceivable being. And he doesn't say this thing exists. He's not He's not referring to something, at first at least. Rather, he begins just by talking about a conception of it and just saying, well, let's imagine the greatest thing we can imagine. And then he uses, uh, from his point of view at least, um, deductive reasoning to demonstrate that it is necessary that this being does exist. Uh, so he demonstrate that, demonstrates that it's logically necessary. That you, If you think about it, if, you, if you're properly conceiving of God, you cannot imagine God to not exist. Metaphysical necessity is something different though, and it's, it's not something that I'm... I, I don't feel like I can describe because I, I, I don't think it makes Meta any sense personally. I'll go with metaphysical necessity. Sure. Metaphysical yeah, necessity describes that because a thing is what it is, it has to exist. Not necessarily for logical purposes, but just because of what it is. Uh, so, for example, if I say, so for I, example, if I say, the definition of God has, if I were to say, for example, my teacup, ex my uh, mug exists necessarily, I would, or metaphysical, but through metaphysical necessity, then I'm saying that because my uh, mug is what it is, it has to exist. There's just no quarrel about it. Uh, although this is easily disprovable by a number of ways. One, I can one, uh, you can easily conceive a possible world where that teacup uh, didn't exist. That, that makes uh, just about as much sense as it did. As if it didn't, uh, I could also smash it against a wall and say, "Yeah, well, it was there, but now it's gone." I, granted, I still have to account for the material of it, but uh, that would just be another way. Now, you, obviously, you couldn't do this, do it with God in that way, but the first way is essentially how uh, uh, Cleanthes tries to deal with this. He says, "Look, I could easily just like it makes just as much as much sense to say that God doesn't exist as it as he does to exist." So God. So the question still be remains arbitrary. Just like I could, just like it's perfectly rational to conceive that the tea, that uh, the mug, 
could have existed as well as it couldn't. It didn't have to be uh, in such a way. Yeah, and, and and that's what I'm disagreeing with him about. I think that some people would argue very strongly that that's not the case. That that in fact one Logical couldn't. necessity implies metaphysical necessity. Uh, well, no, I, I, but not only that is that some might argue that the fact that it exists at all implies that it's both logically and metaphysically nece necessary, like Leibniz. Uh, so I I don't think that I, I don't think that he's he's necessarily. He, I think he's just making an assertion, to be honest, and I don't, I don't think it's a very good one. I don't disagree with his conclusion necessarily, but I don't. Uh, it's how he gets there that I don't think I don't, I don't approve of. You agree it's a good belief, but it's not a justified belief. Um, at least he doesn't. That's justify. but that's what I would consider a good belief is a justified one. I mean, it depends what you mean by good. Uh, okay, you agree that the belief, belief. is correct, but it's just not justified from his point of view. Like the conclusion's correct, maybe, but um, the way you got there would be. I think the conclusion faulty. that those a priori arguments are faulty is correct, but I don't think his critique of them is is a good one. <laughs> um, it's it's a it's almost a Gettier case because he he does happen to be right. They're wrong, or I think they're 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 flawed arguments, but they're not flawed for the reasons that he thinks they're flawed, mm -hmm. and so there's no causal relationship between the flaw and his belief. Anyway, sorry. all right. Well, let's try. Let's try to get into. Let's try to get back to his 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 knocking it down here. Like um, it, like he says, like you know. But further, why may not the material universe be the necessarily existent being according to this pretended explanation of necessity? We dare not affirm that we know all the qualities of matter. For for aught we can determine, it may contain some qualities which, were they known, would make the non-existence appear as great a contradiction as twice two is five. Um, and uh, I mean, he yeah, I think that's that's where that, he's at. And he, he that a is a better argument. argument. Yes. Yeah, I mean, he gives a little a little bit of after that. You know, he says um, it it is said that um, wait, I only find one argument employed to prove that the material world is not the necessarily existent being, and by, and this argument is derived from the contingency both of matter and the form of the world. Any particle, it is said, may be conceived to be annihilated, and any form may be conceived to be altered. Such an annihilation or alteration, therefore, is not impossible. Um, I don't know if that if that actually is an argument against what he just said there, isn't it? Uh, well, it would be because he's saying that they're necessary, and so they really couldn't be imagined to exist any other way. Um, I, I I actually think that this concept of metaphysical necessity is kind of um, muddled, to be honest. I I don't I don't think it it is a thing. Um, but that's again, that's a different argument to be had. That's a a much longer argument, uh, one that I'm far far too tired to make right now. Um, yeah. yeah, I, mean, I, I think that this is. I would actually make the opposite argument. I think metaphysical necessity um, is makes perfect sense. But I would also argue that logical necessity um, is contingent upon metaphysical necessity, or collapses into it. Uh, yeah, that would be my uh, argument. But that's just that's its own debate. Yeah. Um. Uh. Okay. Let Let's Let's go back here, though. We're We're getting off track a, a few a bit. Uh, I, I shouldn't have brought up epistemology. Um. But let's see. Where are we? Um. Yeah. Okay. I think this is a better argument, though. When he says, he, when he does say that that we we do not know that the universe isn't necessary. Actually, I think that is a better argument. I think that's a much better argument than than the one he was putting forth before. Simply. And and his the the counter argument that well any particular bit can be imagined to not exist is problematic for the same reason that one saying well I can imagine God to not exist therefore the ontological argument is false uh, I think they're both they're both 
equally um, unjustified uh, retorts. So actually, I, I do think that this part is a better. This is this I think is a good complaint. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's yeah, it's, that's that's a valid point. You know that um, it, just because you're talking about conceivability, the you know just because you conceive otherwise or you think you can conceive otherwise doesn't necessarily prove the or disprove the the necessity of that of that concept, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and again, the the fact that he he specifically refers to conception here makes me think that he's talking about logical necessity and not metaphysical necessity. Because again, the fact that one could conceive of something to not exist does not mean that it's not metaphysically necessary. Even, for example, Epicurus, you'd, you'd probably agree that the ontological argument is flawed, and so we can conceive log of a logically self-consistent world without God, but you'd also argue that God is metaphysically necessary, wouldn't you? I would. Okay, but you, you don't think God is logically necessary. Oh, I think, uh, actually, my problem with logical necessity is that it's derivative of metaphysical necessity, not the other way around. Uh, for example... Usually when we describe um, metaphysics, it's usually about what is the nature of, of reality. And so when I say something exists necessarily, it is within that, the nature of that thing to specifically exist. Now, usually this is when uh, someone uh, such as Cleanthes might use uh, possibility, or maybe to use po modern vernacular, possible worlds. Now, the I'm going to have to delve into the notion of essences to describe my position. Uh, when something has an essence or, or what it means to be that specific thing, it implies something about uh, that specific agent. So, for example, let's say um, we take, uh, I'm going to take you, Gibran. Um, let's say we take you and put you in all these uh, possible worlds. There are some worlds where I can, where it's not inaccurate to say that you are maybe a foot taller or shorter, maybe there's a possible world wherein uh, you wherein uh, you got up an hour earlier or later. Uh, such a thing is not uh, is such a thing could be imagined to happen, and it makes perfect sense considering who you are. But there is no possible world where you're a doorknob or where you're a refrigerator, because that just because that would just not make that would not make sense in the sense of what it means to be you, or what it specifically means to be you. If we're, there are tons of things about you that are integral to who you are. So in such a respect, when I use possible world, it comes after um, discussing what it means to be Gibran, not sure. beforehand. So the possible, so logical, po um, so logical necessity is merely descriptive of the of the agent's being, and it is not prescriptive of how it should or should not be. Um, see, I, I think the problem I have with this is that I don't think that that concept makes any sense. I don't think there is uh, no, I, a coherent concept of essence. I agree, but that, that, that's actually a, yeah. an interesting um, sure, it's an interesting for, for logical uh, necessity, though. Uh, I think it is an interesting point. Don't get me wrong. The fact that I disagree doesn't mean I don't think it's interesting. Uh, I, I disagree profoundly. I think it's based off of shaky foundations. But I also think it's an interesting argument based off of shaky foundations. I love talking about the ontological argument, even though I think it's based off of the shakiest of foundations, that is, the youth of Rodoama. <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah. Hey, cool. So, I mean, okay, uh, well, let's, let's, uh, let's try to move on here a little bit so we can get through Chapter 9 before, before too long. Um, 
it, it, as he as he kind of goes here, um, he says, um, in such a, in such a chain too, or succession of objects, each part is caused by that which preceded it, and causes that which succeeds it. Where then is the difficulty? But the whole, you say, wants a cause. I answer, that the uniting of these parts into a whole, like the uniting of several distinct countries into one kingdom, or several distinct members into one body, is performed merely by an arbitrary act of the mind, and has no influence on the nature of things. Um, did, I show, did I show you the particular causes of each individual in a collection of 20 particles of matter, I should think it very unreasonable should you afterwards ask me what was the cause of the whole 20. This is sufficiently explained in the explaining the cause of the parts. Yeah, I think this is also kind of a weaker argument because the, yeah, the, the question is not where did everything come from, it's where did anything come from. Um, so I, I, I think he's he I, I don't think this is a particularly good argument actually. Also I think it kind of delves into circular logic. He's essentially saying we don't necessarily have to prove the whole thing. We could as long as we have a good enough explanation of where these individual things came from, then we then we can make the case. And here's the problem. It kind of and this is where it delves into circularity. It says, Why does this whole thing exist? Well, because these individual things exist. Well, why do these individual things exist? Well, you could go on infinitum describing those things, or you could just say, well, the whole thing exists. So it kind yeah. of delves back into that circularity, similar to where do eggs come from? Chickens. Where do chickens come from? Eggs. So. Yeah, I don't, I don't actually think that that's true, though, because he's not saying that. He's not saying, well, this is where the whole comes from. He's saying, well, if I showed you the chain of every one of these, you would agree, well, okay, surely x has a cause and y has a cause and I know what that cause is but what is the cause of everything is what he's is, is the question that he's saying that doesn't make any sense once you've been shown the cause of x and y I think there is a problem with it but I don't think it's circular reasoning because he's not saying that that well the whole came from somewhere therefore the parts came from somewhere I, th I think he's saying that I mean when we when we talk about whole and like ask for the reason of the whole I think we're doing it very arbitrarily like we're assuming that this is everything that we're seeing and we're looking for a cause that's not that thing right um, yeah that's why I it's a bad question yeah exactly it's sort of a, an illegitimate question in that way I think he's saying but... well there's a legitimate question to be asked where did anything come from mm -hmm. um, that's a very different question. Uh, you know, just just looking at it, um, you know, it, it's kind of weird because Clanthes sort of pipes up and, and makes all these objections, and they're sort of they sort of are all kind of poor objections. Um, I wonder if that was on purpose to kind of. <laughs> well, some of them set, were good. Yeah, I mean, they, they're they on the surface they're sort of good, and I think they raise good thought, uh, good ideas about it, or you know, weed in weed in valuable directions. But I don't think that they. Uh, kind of get to the rigorous uh, sort of proof for or rebuttal sort of style. Um, I, you know, uh, okay, so right after, I mean, uh, Philo is right into it, and, you know, um, he says, uh, though the reasonings you, which you have urged may well excuse me, said Philo, to start from starting any further difficulties, I cannot yet forbear insisting upon another topic. Um, he talks about the arithmeticians and that the product of nine composes, always compose either nine or some lesser product of nine. Um, and that, um, to a superficial observer, so wonderful a regularity may be admired as the effect of either chance or design, but a skillful algebraist immediately concludes that it would be the work of necessity and demonstrates that it must forever result from the nature of these numbers. Is it not probable, I ask, that the whole economy of the universe is conducted by a like necessity? And uh, though no human algebra can furnish a key which solves the difficulty. 
it's slightly misleading. Um, he shouldn't have said numbers. He should have said numeric system because you get the same pattern with any uh, base system. Um, it, well, any base system other than base... Well, okay, no, you really do get it with every base system. But um, if you take base 8, you get the same pattern with 7. Uh, it's, just a, it's just a feature of all, all numeric systems that the, that the base minus 1 has this interesting pattern with it. Um, but but anyway, yes, he is right. It is necessary. It's just I think it was a slight. He should have said numerical system, not number. But that's a small small quibble. It uh, his point still stands. I think. I regret not learning math. <laughs> Sorry, my <laughs> my math comprehension is just terrible. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he kind of, uh, right at the end of it, he says, you know, instead of admiring the order of natural beings, may it not happen that we could, if we could penetrate into the intimate nature of bodies, we could clearly see why it was absolutely n impossible that they could ever admit of any other disposition. Um, and he says, you know, it, it's it's dangerous to the idea of the religious hypothesis, right? Um, because because necessity can is usually demon is demonstrable, isn't it? Um, I think that was sort of the point of the number thing is that the reason we can say that it's necessary is because we can demonstrate it and that with things that we can't access like like a deity it would be hard to demonstrate the necessity of it wouldn't it or uh, I mean even if you could see the product it isn't that it's hard to see that it's ne necessary because you're not peering into the into the full kind of intimate details of of the numbers themselves like you are when you're doing math or algebra sure sure I see. No, that makes sense Okay, cool. It's hard to demonstrate the necessity of these things. I mean, that's why that's why there's a lot of work done in 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 like uh, really obscure fields of mathematics because I mean, these things eventually might have some applicability, um, but they're also just interesting problems and demonstrating that something truly is the case in mathematics can be quite a challenge. It's really cool, actually. But <laughs> yeah, totally. No, absolutely. But it's 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 doable, and I think that's what I think what yeah. he's getting at. But it, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I mean, he says you know dropping all these abstractions, which I guess is like what what is what he was kind of going for there, right? Um, and confining ourselves to more familiar topics, I shall venture to add an observation that the argument a priori has seldom been found convincing except to people of a metaphysical head who have accustomed themselves to abstract reasoning and who find from mathematics that understanding frequently leads to truth through obscurity and contrary to first appearances have transferred the same habit of thinking to subjects where it not ought to have a place. Hmm. I think that's probably the probably the most uh, damning uh, a priori uh, rebuttal, isn't it? Um, that, uh, that I mean, people are, are really just transferring things to uh, areas that, that they're not really applicable. Transferring, well, um, it's kind of a crappy rebuttal because it doesn't back that up, really. I mean, he, no, it's he, true, yeah. It's more of an he, assertion. But al I, although it, I think it may be true, but I, I think. In all, in all fairness to Hume, he, he spends a lot of his other work actually... Uh, going after metaphysicians, he he is just not a fan of the discipline itself. Um, he denied a lot of their rudimentary assertions or claims to knowledge, uh, you know, even causation. He, not to say he didn't he didn't hold to notions of causation. He just didn't think that they were demonstrable, at least in meta at least in a metaphysical understanding. So what he's trying to do is essentially just sweep these notions out of under their feet because. What they're doing is they're taking abstract notions and trying to, and essentially trying to make them apply to things that do not have a bearing. Uh, for example, uh, 
numbers are abstract entities. They're not they're not uh, solid like me or you or most of things in the physical world. And by and by highlighting this point, he's essentially just trying to say uh, what they're doing is just taking from one discipline that doesn't really belong into another that where it's not really fit to have. Yeah, I mean, my problem with metaphysics, or not metaphysics in general, but um, I think there's some very legitimate fields in it, but with a lot of metaphysical theories is I, I think that they mistake the map for the territory. I think that they describe objects as if they exist um, outside of the mind and then ascribe properties to them, and I don't think that that is a coherent philosophical system. Um, I think that that is merely... I think it is. it is really projecting, quite literally, projecting how one thinks about the world onto the world. And that, I think, is is one of the worst habits one can have in philosophy. I mean, it's an easy one to, to fall into, too. Um, for example, it's hard to imagine thinking about the world in terms other than of objects. And when we consider that it is inconceivable to do otherwise, it becomes hard to consider how we could do otherwise, obviously. And so we think, well, this must be how it actually is, because we cannot conceive of it as anything else. And I think that, that is, that's really where it goes astray. And this is why I think Hume has a bit more respect for the uh, a posteriori uh, notions, because at least when you try to go there, you're trying to, uh, you're trying to demonstrate the existence of God using the world itself, whereas when you're trying to go at it all a priori, you're essentially taking very abstract concepts that are, as you said, mm. more map-like mm -hmm. and describing them to the territory. Um, yeah, and I mean, given given that he, I, I would, I would, I wouldn't, I, I could be incorrect in saying this, but I'm under the impression that Hume uh, believed that um, mathematics was the science of empirical generalizations, um, and if that is the case, then he would not even admit that mathematical truths are true a priori. Uh, he would argue that they are um, they are things that we we observe or learn. Um, but yeah, that I could be incorrect in, in ascribing that belief to him. I know that's a fairly common one nowadays, but I, I it's it's I believe Hume probably thought that. I don't necessarily agree with him, but I also don't necessarily disagree with him. Um, there's uh, a lot to be said for that, actually. Anyway, uh, getting a bit off topic there, uh, into a general critique of metaphysics. Um, no, that's good. I mean, I think it's uh, it's good to kind of sort of wrap up the idea of the uh, of the a priori argument that way. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it, he he doesn't. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're right that he doesn't really get into it all that much. I mean, this chapter is so short, um, and they seem to dismiss it sort of offhand. But I mean, I I, I kind of uh, understand why. I mean, it is sort of unconvincing when we're talking about natural religion to fall back on uh, an a priori argument. Um, I think when you're discussing natural religion, you, you sort of have to have a, an element that is um, observable or demonstrable, or at least resides in the natural world, I would say. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the ontological argument is a fine piece of natural theology. I, again, I, I think there are a lot of huge problems with it, but it's an a priori argument, and it, I think, is a very good piece of natural theology. I think it's it's probably, if it were a successful argument, I think it would be by far the best one for the existence of a god. Uh, simply by virtue of the fact that it would get you so many traits that the other arguments couldn't get you. I, I don't think can get you, at least. But anyway, yeah, that... 
I, I don't know. I will. Uh, it, I guess it depends what kind of traits you're looking to to prove. Well, um, all greatness. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, no, right. John, it's great. It's not good. <laughs> uh, so okay, looks like we're into uh, part ten then. Um, now part ten goes into uh, it's sort of what is it? The the argument um from evil. I guess you could say from evil. Yeah, I mean, it, the topic of human misery is sort of how they put it. Um, this is an incredibly depressing chapter, by the way. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I mean... And, I know you're not a fan. I know uh, you're actually not a fan as you brought of the arguments uh, for evil against the existence of God, so this should be interesting to see your position. I think that this was a... a I mean, here's my problem with Hume in general. He, he seems to base most of his arguments off of... off of... Um, off of common sense, and I think that that's a terrible place to start. And and this is why I would reject this argument. He says, uh, I, in some ways, I think this is a, a very well-formulated version of the argument from evil, but I don't think it's a good argument nonetheless. So he he, he, he talks uh, as... He, he, he waxes poetical, both uh, Demea and Philo, um, uh, expound yeah. on the misery of life and humanity and describe it in excruciating detail. Um, yeah, well, I mean, he, he says it right here. I mean, he says, uh, you know, uh, I am indeed persuaded that the best and indeed the only method of bringing everyone to a due sense of religion is by just representations of the misery and wickedness of men. And for that purpose, a talent of eloquence and strong imagery is more requisite than that of reasoning or and argument. For it is necessary to prove what everyone feels... Is it necessary to prove what everyone feels within himself? It is only necessary to make us feel it, if possible, more intimately and sensibly. Um, so he's just saying, yeah, you, you just have to point out to it, and people naturally uh, relate to the idea of, um, let me think, of uh, of misery uh, being <laughs> being the the more the more common uh, aspect of life. He he seems to use it as an argument for the existence of God. And then they... or tries to, at least. Um, I think yeah, it's I mean, Demea that does he, that. Yeah, he comes at it um, with Demea in, in, in the idea that it is um, an argument for the existence of God. You know, um, Demea says, you know, wretched creatures that we are, what, resources, what resource for us amidst the innumerable ills of life did not religion suggest some method of atonement and appease those terrors with which we are incessantly agitated and tormented. So he's, he's pointing to the religion uh, as, the, as the cure for the, the natural suffering of, of life. Uh, yeah. <coughs> Sorry. And uh, yeah, I mean, well, what do you, what do you think about that, Eddie? Um, is is it um, I mean, would you say that we're in in a uh, a life that is mostly um suffering or or misery? Um, well, it, the argument from evil is actually always a pretty interesting one, especially in this because evil is actually a force that brings people either to or away from religion. I remember uh, listening to bits by George Carlin about how he could never believe in a god that would uh, lead create a world with so much uh, suffering, disease, and the ice capades. And then again you had and then again you had someone like C.S. Lewis who in mere Christianity waxes philosophical about this, how a God would not create a world such as this because it's crooked and demented. But how do I know what a crooked line is like unless I know what a straight line is? Thus there must be some source of goodness in the world. And there he turns to God. So it's a, so evil is actually this 
very interesting mechanism in which how we relate to or suffering in which uh, how people relate to religion and it's a deal break and you could either look at it like Lewis did as a half full thing and go to religion or like Carlin and half empty so right here we have Demir representing uh, uh, C.S. Lewis and you have uh, Philo here about to represent uh, Carlin's position on it so that's uh, my so that's essentially how I would describe this chapter in terms of the two viewpoints uh, to just to just to let everyone down easy now, there's nowhere near as much swearing in this dialogue as in a George Carlin sketch. So <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry for your disappointment, and it's probably not quite as funny. Um, and and, uh, and Philo said shit piss. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, now let's try to stay on iTunes without too high of a, a, an age rating. Uh, yeah. I, okay. I to the first two words on that list. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, well, okay. Here's here's the thing. I I, I would agree with you absolutely. Um, I think evil is probably one of the most interesting theological problems. Um, both not not just necessarily as a problem for theology, but as a problem from which theology can be wrought. So I think it has it has a lot of it has a lot of importance one way or the other to to most people certainly. Um, I think there are a few people who don't care about it as a problem to some extent. Um, whether or not they think it, it makes God more plausible or not, that's a, a different matter altogether. I would actually fall um, on the side of saying that there is uh, more happiness than suffering. Or, at least, that one cannot... I, I, would, I, would, I would say, at the very least, uh, one cannot say that there is more the one cannot um, defend the position that there's more misery than than happiness um, if not uh, actually support the other position so I, I I don't know it's it's not I I would consider myself I guess an optimist um, it's it, 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 I, yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a really odd question and and I actually find this it's, it's, it really changes how people act and think about the world, and yet it's also one of those things where when we get to discussing it, all we can do is really just line up examples. Um, and I, can, I could produce thousands of examples where I think that happiness outweighs suffering, and you all could, could throw out thousands of examples where you think suffering outweighs happiness. And in the end, we would be no closer to determining which is the case, then when we started, we would simply have just uh, wasted so much breath, uh, failing to convince one another. Um, so I, I and it's, to some extent, I don't think it is almost a question even worth discussing, just because it, it it's so hard to get anywhere with it. Um, I I think ultimately it it comes down to uh, really one's uh, well to some extent, like for example, I would consider. If, if we were to have this discussion, and I don't think we should, I'm just going to use an example from it, though, to demonstrate part of the intractability of the problem. I would consider the moon landings to be an example of, of an act of, of wondrous good, but we would be able to in no way compare it to the suffering of thousands who starve. Uh, 
I, I might even think that it outweighs that, but how could I make that case in any way? Uh, by what criteria could we use to compare the sorts of great works that I think are worth preserving about humanity um, to the, the ills that make people think that humanity is worthless? Uh, so I, I think that this particular question is not one that we can even really have any productive conversations about almost. We can talk about the consequences of it, but we'll have to assume one answer or the other before we can really go into that discussion. Um, it, at least for part of the discussion, we'll have to assume one answer and then assume the other, just for the sake of balance. But yeah, yeah I, I, even... Yeah, yeah Sorry, I mean... Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, I sort of... Uh, he argues that, I mean, uh, if, you know, if how would you sh show a stranger... Um, the the specimen of the ills and the specimen of of what's good right um you know you could show him uh you know prisons or or hospital rooms or you know battlefields full of dead people or whatever for the ills um and then you could show him balls and operas and courthouses for the goods um or the you know the the gaiety of life he said the gay side of life um uh you know obviously different connotation now yeah but, yeah, but he says um commence I, yeah, I was, I was, I was hoping to get a little giggle out of somebody, but anyway, but he says, but you know, he might justly think that I was only showing him a diversity of distress and sorrow. Um, it, it took me a second, but I think, I think he's right about that. Um, that I mean, distress and sorrow is sort of uh, subjective to the people that you're talking about, right? Um, if it, it depends who's involved in that situation and what their disposition is, so I, sure. I guess it would be, it would be sort of uh, interesting, you know, how would you prove? that this world is mostly good or mostly bad, or even what part of life is good and bad. Um. Uh, I mean, and, and here, here I think comes the sort of the killing blow to any productive conversation being had here. Um, what one considers uh, a good versus an evil, I do not think boils down purely to the hedonist's view of good and evil, which is to say pleasure uh, and, and pain. Um, and this is actually, I think, where Hume's argument falls apart, because he seems to assume that to some extent. He says, well, pain gets worse as we have it, and that's biologically only true of chronic pain, um, bioneurologically really, but, but, or neurobiologically, but, but whatever. Uh, but that pleasure fades quickly, and I think that this, this very specifically is why he came to the conclusion that he did, that there is more evil than good, because he's describing it purely in terms of pleasure uh, and pain. Uh, and I think that that is his mistake, and that, that if he is to look at it in a different way, he'll come to a completely different conclusion. I agree with you to some extent, or Hume at least, that, that there's probably more pain than pleasure, but I do not think that, that, that those two things uh, are... Uh, the full extent of the good or the evil, and so to to base one's argument off of the characteristics of those things, I think that's really where the flaw lies. Um, for example, I may read, I, I may take a book um, and take sort of an abstract pleasure from reading it. Just a book. Here's a book, to use an example. Um, is that the Book of Mormon? <laughs> it's a yes, it is. Some they were nice enough to send me a free copy, and I was huh. pleasure pleasured to accept it. 
I also oh, I also love to receive free books from uh, anybody who's looking to give me free books. Uh, so if <laughs> yeah. Hint, hint, hint. <laughs> yes, actually, uh, I think that probably goes for all of us. Yeah, no, I was uh, I was I heard um there was a really nice bound. Sorry, this is a little off topic, but just just recently the Jehovah's Witnesses put out this really nice bound copy of the Bible, and they sent it out to a hundred thousand people in Edmonton. Um, but I didn't receive oh. a copy of it, and I was. Like Damn. so mad. I don't know. I'm still looking around for one. I'm uh, gonna see if, if it's it, the Watchtower Bible. Then uh, the translation's a bit shaky. I'll just give you. a uh, shaky or not, though, I love a I love a good book, and uh, you know they took the time to publish it, so I'll uh, I'll peruse you, you, you it. You love the good book, don't you? <laughs> right, exactly. And they're all they're all the good book, actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> cool. So yeah, absolutely. So I mean, um, it's 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 interesting this this argument from evil, right? Um, exactly how you could even you could even quantify the the idea of it, right? Um, that's that's well, that's an interesting. And, and here here is I think the problem, because Hume has not, in this case at least, explicitly identified what he's referring to as good and evil, um, or Hume. I, by that I mean the people in the dialogue. I cannot even begin to analyze their claims. For example, when I say the world is filled with more good than evil, I mean things, I include things in the good that are not pleasure or happiness, but are things like the moon landings, which had pleasure and happiness involved in them, but I think were much greater for other reasons um, than just that. And so that, I think, is really where the disagreements are going to really start. <laughs> that, not to say where they, they begin, or not, not where they end, but where they really, where they do begin, not where they end, but, but where they begin. Also, um, but, also, we have to discuss on where and how pain and pleasure really resound with one another and how we come to know or understand them. Uh, for example, um, if we spent, one could often wonder if we spent our lives without any of those painful moments, uh, the heartbreaks, the suffering, the ache, what kind of person would we be? Are we better off with them or without them? Is the only reason we can experience joy be is because we can know pain the way we... Yeah, I, I would actually reject that. I, I don't think that's that's the case. Uh, I, and ironically, I think that that undermines the position that there's an objective good or... Uh, an objective good if to say, well, good is only good when comparing it to evil, well then, without evil, there is no good, and so there is no good in and of itself. There is only good when compared to evil, and so I, I don't think you can maintain that and, and believe in objective morality. No, yeah, it is a very weird dualistic position, but you, not necessarily when finite minds are concerned. If you have a mind that's, uh, that can only that has to have uh, demonstrations or notions of what it means to be either good or evil, for that uh, mind trying to learn or absorb and adapt and identifying what really is good, it needs to go through that period of people. Like one can make that example just and apply it only to finite minds, and that's us. Not okay, but but even that. then, that that undermines the point because you're now saying, well, okay, we we only know good and evil when we only know good by comparing it to the evil, we only know evil when comparing it to the good, presumably. And so what use do we have? What use could we have for a knowledge of the objective good or evil? Because we, as you, you say, we couldn't have it. Um, if it is not the case, though, that we need to have a, the experience of the evil to know the good, um, I mean, we, we would need, well, I mean, if there's an objective good, I don't think we would necessarily have to have that then. Could we not just experience it? And, and if we were given the knowledge of what it is, what good is, wouldn't we then know what good is when we see it? 
one could, well, one could rationalize it much like uh, how Socrates saw knowledge, where knowledge was not something that you have that you can ultimately grasp in and of itself, but rather it's something for from eternity to eternity you come to know gradually over time. So while humans might never ultimately understand the good because they are always they have an infinite time to approach it they're always going to come to a closer and closer understanding it's a bit like Zeno's paradox where no matter how um, just to give you guys an example of what Zeno's paradox is he puts Achilles in a race with a turtle and he gives the turtle a head start and no matter and in this funny little paradox no matter how close if, uh, if Achilles makes that much traction the tortoise gets a little more ahead and then Achilles makes more, then the turtle gets more. Now they come closer and closer each time, but the turtle is always a bit further along than Zeno. Yeah, so, isn't it? Isn't it? Um, if you if you give the turtle a head start and Achilles can every time Achilles runs half of the distance or something like that, every time he halves the distance um, between them, he he'll he'll never. He'll Sorry, never that's beat a, the turtle, right? Isn't it? Like, those are you're you're confusing two different Zeno's paradoxes. Oh, I have no you're idea. Right. You're right that the, the having thing that is another version of Zeno's oh, paradox, okay. but the Achilles example is more of an illustration, whereas the whole to to get to somewhere first you must go half the distance and then half the distance from where you are now to to, to get there. But um, you never actually get there if Yeah, that's what he's arguing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the the turtle one, rather than then he would have to get half the distance, it's saying, well, okay, so we imagine that the turtle has a head start. By the time Achilles gets to where the turtle was, the turtle is now ahead of him. So now Achilles then has to catch up to the turtle again. But by the time Achilles gets to the to where the turtle was, again the turtle has moved on and and ad infinitum just keep going on. It's like as it's like as soon as you know a little more about about the good, there's more to know and so on and so forth. And that's why you can never really approach that knowledge. But through eternity, you you get a little closer. And much the similar way for Socrates, the more he knows, the more he's the more he knows at one point. More he's going to know, and so on and so forth. That's why he spent. That's why for the Platonists, an eternity of knowledge is considered such a blessing because you're constantly knowing more and more, and you're spending time pontificating for it. The Christian version would be uh, a, not more, a more thorough knowledge of goodness. So, well, um, I mean, okay. So, I are do we agree then that um, you know that human life is um, is, is more misery than than pleasure then. I mean, uh, or more misery, uh, pleasure, sorry, is the wrong word. Uh, more misery than not, I guess, would be the, the way no. of putting it. No, I would I say, wouldn't. On Earth, I would say yes. That's my opinion. Hmm. Yeah, I would I would disagree, but we can move on in spite of my disagreement. Right, I mean, it seems like they all kind of agree with that, right? I mean, I know Demia and Philo both kind of go on about the, uh, that there's, you know, a, a library full of books where there isn't an author in there that doesn't, you know, hit on the idea of human misery. And uh, and I think it is quite common in, in religious circles also um, to to kind of hit on the idea of uh, this life being being suffering and uh, and being filled with misery. So I think I think they're both they're both kind of coming at it from that point of view, anyways. But but I yeah I mean I think it's I think it's open for debate. That's for sure. Um, okay, so from there um, it's it's sort of uh, Philo says you know um, the deity you know how can we you know with with this idea. Of of the there being more misery than or that that life being you know human misery um, that um, 
that you could say that the the deity has uh, justice or benevolence or or mercy or anything like that, right? Um, his his wisdom is infinite. He is never mistaken in choosing the means to an end. But the course of nature tends not to human or animal felicity. Uh, therefore, it is not established for that purpose. Um, would would you guys agree with that? I mean, if we could prove that. Uh, that there it was mostly misery, and then there if there was a god, then he that wasn't his purpose in doing it, right? Hmm. Um, maybe. I'll let go this one. Well, I mean, it really depends on what god we're talk, what kind of god we're talking about, um, and what kind of like. Okay. All right. Yeah, again, it depends on the kind of god. So if we're talking. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't think I can really answer this. I think there's, there's too much um, that I, I don't know yet to, to really say. So. Yeah, I mean, his power we allow is infinite. Whatever he wills is executed, but neither man nor any other animal is happy. Therefore, he does not will their happiness. Um, I think that's a, that's a, that's a fairly airtight argument, isn't it? Not necessarily. It depends on what is considered because um, usually you have to define your terms now. What would can be considered happiness if we're just defining it in terms of going to the uh, enjoying the gaiety of the opera? <laughs> so funny. <laughs> oh, or uh, I am very immature, guys. I'm very sorry about that one. Or if we define it as eating or a form of uh, light hedonism, then yes, I would say that nature is not designed for that. Clearly, that is not the intent. Otherwise, if we so, every time we so willed, uh, cheese would instantly come. Cheese would just come before us, and we'd enjoy it. Oh, I see. I'm eating cheese. Did you just will that cheese to, to your mouth? Yes. Interesting. It worked. Checkmate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cool. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So this is the kind of term he's not defining because for someone who's like a religious ascetic, uh, like a monk living out in the desert alone, they take. Uh, they get great satisfaction of that because they're leaving away their desires and kernel pleasures and they're doing all less with more. So they might have that an approach a religious approach to God as being the ultimate source of happiness. So nature isn't designed for a hedonistic kind of happiness, but uh, which ultimately would lead to suffering in some sense. But rather he he's uh, trying to strive for a much higher form. Well, one could argue that much as well. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it would depend kind of on the idea of of happiness, right? But I mean, I think clearly he's referring to you know the idea of of man or animals' happiness, right? And in that way, I think I think the world can clearly be said to be not uh, not made for that that particular purpose. Um, well, it would be, I would, it would agree be, that would it's be not more... made for that, but I don't agree that it has more suffering than than happiness. But but I, I would certainly agree that it isn't made for that purpose. Here's the other thing you could argue. Right, about I don't, I don't think it was made for any. Purpose. Yeah. No. So, sure. But, sure. But, obviously. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the 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 amusing thing, Epicurus, is you said that that God is is building this world for a greater kind of happiness. You could also argue that he's building it for a lesser kind of happiness. That really he cares about the happiness of uh, microbes, and that we're just a byproduct, a really complicated, disgusting byproduct of bacteria. And usually, this is where something like Revelation kind of helps out because you can make your point on that ground. But if you're coming at it from purely natural theology, then I would agree, Gibran. You cannot really, it's really hard to come to the will of God just from that specific point of view. And the Stephen Law, the uh, or Stefan Law, the uh, one uh, 
a British philosopher actually makes this point in his Evil God Challenge where he says, look, any classification of God you can give that makes him good, I can probably make one up that's where he's evil. That makes just as much sense, so, or indifferent. These are not contradictory things, so... Hmm. That is... Yeah, I mean, okay, well, this this kind of gets into the, uh, I mean, the Epicurus's, uh, Epicurus's questions, right, about, um, you know, is he willing to prevent evil but not able, Is then he's impotent. You know, is he able but not willing, then he's malevolent. And I think that's where you're kind of, you know, that's where it kind of it hinges there, you know. Um, if, he's, if he's definitely... If he is definitely all powerful, then what we're talking about is why did he will it this way, right? Um, what was his intention? Maybe we, we're we're talking about, you know. And if he's both able and willing, then clearly, you know, how could we have suffering? You know, where would misery come from if he wanted it any other way? So I mean, I yeah. So I think that's I think that's the the biggest takedown of it, right? Isn't it? Um, that it's it's hard to get to the nature of the deity from the observation of of the of the natural world this way um, especially when when considered in kind of that that mindset where you're talking about um, misery being being the common thing in, in life in I just want to actually make one correction because this was originally done through Hume's dialogue but apparently there has been some, there have been claims that this was misattributed a quote misattributed to Epicurus, uh, not myself, the actual philosopher whose name I like to go by. Apparent, because a lot of these attributes regarding God are post-Greek. They're they're very Christian understandings that came uh, much later. The Greek gods were not all these all-powerful creatures. They could be killed. They could be destroyed. They were part. They were just a part of the natural world. They had physical bodies. So on and so forth, and for them, they would not—they would not have anything close to the properties, the ultimate, uh, supreme properties that we might imagine of uh, the god of classical uh, Christianity and Judaism and Islam to have. So it's—it's it's likely that they were misattributed uh, by an early, by an early Christian church father, uh, Lycantus. Uh, I—I'm not. I can't frankly remember his name, but it was probably misattributed to some early uh, to Epicurus through some of the early critics of his uh, group. So I just wanted to clear that much up. Okay, cool. Well, that's good to know. Um, do I? Uh, okay, so I mean, what do you what do you think about the about this about this particular dilemma, right? I guess it's not really a dilemma. I mean, uh, about this about this. It's, it's a trilemma. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, how how exactly do you um do you kind of approach it, right? Um, if uh, do you I mean do you kind of go into the uh I mean how does how does Demia take it? Um, uh, that that they just don't know um what is you know we do, we can't know what the effects from the causes are, and we can't know what the causes of the effects are, uh, in total, anyways, right? And so we don't know that the that what we consider suffering might be rectified in a future situation, and I think that's that's an interesting way of kind of looking at it. Um, do you? I mean, do, do you find that you uh, do you, that you struggle with the with the idea of of a, of a malevolent deity? A malevolent deity. I mm -hmm. wouldn't be too happy with that outcome. Uh, I don't think anyone else would. Uh, 
but to me the problem of malevolent deity is just the notion that I just don't think malevolence is I don't think malevolence uh, may I think it contradicts uh, the other two um, the other notions of God being either all-powerful or all-knowing and even the you notion could... of omnimalevolence strikes me as being a, a contradictory in and of itself because in order to because let's say uh, one looks at malevolence uh, to commit evil is in some sense to know what is to know what is some sense in some sense good and then and then break it uh, <laughs> it's to it's a notion of it's a notion of breaking a an established idea whereas whereas goodness itself is a is a, is an is an abiding is just is doing a set of criteria more or less and that and I think that is uh, where I find the problem of a malevolent deity if it would to me malevolent evil is more of a privation and not necessarily in it in and of itself something that's whole it it requires a goodness in order to break, whereas goodness okay, but stands in its own right. Would it be logically inconsistent if there was a metaphysical absolute evil, but no metaphysical absolute good? Uh, what do you, now can you... Uh... C consider this. You would probably argue that there's a metaphysical absolute good. Mm -hmm. Okay, but imagine, rather, that there's a metaphysical absolute evil, and that being evil was about doing certain particular things, mm -hmm. those things that no being ought do. Um, and, and and good is simply failing to do those things, essentially. Um, so would then uh, an omnibenevolent being, couldn't then an omnibenevolent being exist? Of course, you would then have the problem of good, because you'd say, well, it's not perfectly evil on Earth, therefore God is not omnibenevolent, or sorry, not omnibenevolent, but... but uh, malevolent, yeah. Malevolent, sorry, yeah, my, my bad. Hmm. Interesting. But, but you could argue against it with the problem of good, which, yeah, but... but 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 here I I think that it I think it may just be a, like just presuppose I think you may be begging the question a bit by assuming that there's a, a metaphysical good and not a metaphysical evil. Um, metaphysical evil is is the pri is the privation question. It couldn't really be a mix in my in my own opinion. You could argue, for example, that good that evil is the privation. That uh, sorry, goodness is the privation, and evil. Is the thing, but yeah, that's what I said. The thing though. is, to have ought nots presupposes to have oughts. No, it doesn't, though. You don't. That's not really true, though. That's no, no, no. That's only a feature of our language, though. There could be a completely different word that is that just means ought not. That would be translated into English as ought not, but be a word in and of itself, where the negation of it would be not, not. Like I don't know what this word would be, but 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 it is merely a linguistic fact. It is not a metaphysical fact. Um, to, to assume, though, that, that the fact that we, we say ought and ought not rather than not and not not um, is, is, I think, to, 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 to assume too much based on language. Um, it is allow language to rule our metaphysics, where language is massively incompetent. <laughs> and, and so I, I think that, that, that really that's, it, it's purely linguistic. I, don't, I would not believe it to be as such. In order to, when people kind of imagine that a not not uh, and an ought. An ought demands a criterion, a criterion of obedience or submission, of the sort. Whereas an ought not, whereas an ought not uh, would presuppose that, but then kind of collapse, 
that then kind of collapsed it. And I could not find it in my head, at least. Uh, I'm not sure if that's my own failure in comprehending things. In, okay. In that, in that, can can I explain this? Can I explain this in terms of something that you would agree with? You would okay. agree that atheism is a positive claim. Atheism is not a well. Strong atheism. Which atheism. Which strong atheism. I'm sorry. Strong atheism. Strong atheism. They claim there is no god. Claim, yeah. Okay, but then is it not a positive? How how is it a positive claim? It, how how could it be a positive claim? It, it, explain to me how it could be a positive claim. Oh, uh, gnostic atheism or strong atheism is. No, no, hold on. Just yeah, strong atheism. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I thought atheism. you said agnostic. I I, I misheard you. No, strong atheism is a positive claim because you you're in some sense presupposing that my conception of God has some kind of contradictory or uh, contradictory element that could not exist either in the world we have or at all logically. And to that to make that requires an argument of some kind. But to, so you are making claim. Whereas an agnostic atheism is more or less a and not okay. a denial. Uh, not okay, a, okay. Let me not let me exactly. actually. Sorry, I I, I kind of disagree with you. For the most part, that I think would be how how a gnostic atheist would function. But one could be an evidential gnostic atheist if they were like a naive realist, for example. Um, then they could, then they could be a gnostic um, evidentialist atheist. But but sure, sure. The, but I think the, the the bigger point, the more important thing, though, is that the simpler thing really is that an atheist says. Of the set of all possible worlds, we live in some of those, one of those worlds that does not have a god. Whereas a theist says, in the set of all possible worlds, we live in the subset. We live in 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 one particular possible world in the subset of those that do have a god. So in that sense, they are they are claims of the same sort. They describe what of the possible worlds we live in. Would you agree with that? That that is the most basic way of describing those two claims. Um. Yeah. Sure. I'll I'll buy with that one. Okay, so in that same sense, um, it is merely a linguistic tradition to say atheist or non-theist. It, it, is, it is purely linguistic tradition. Um, so, for example, if I say you ought not do it, I'm saying you should be in one of those possible worlds where you don't do that rather than where you do do that. So it is, it is an equally positive claim. There, there, are, there are many variations on not doing something, um, but there may be even many variations on doing it as well. So I, I, I would, for that same reason, reject the idea that, that, that evil has to be this thing that isn't a thing in and of itself. At the same time, uh, one could, at the same time, one could uh, make a distinction even between an agnostic atheist and a, an agnostic. An agnostic atheist might not be able to prove with all certainty that God doesn't exist within the possible world we are in now, but at the same time says that it can make a probable case based on lack of observation, so on and so forth. Where it was a pure agnostic would be someone that eh, it's 50-50. Granted, uh, I, I, we don't see pure agnostics, but... Sorry, I was just using that as an example though to illustrate the kind of claim that this is. I wasn't. I was. I mean, I. I think I agree with you on 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 these things. I absolutely agree with you that atheism is or strong atheism is a positive claim, um, and I agree with the distinction that you're making here. But but I really only brought that up to illustrate what that claim means or what that claim can be described in terms of, so that we're not just describing it merely in terms of of the the, the word atheist, which is a, a negation of another word. But the atheist can exist without the theist. That that is what I would argue is that that one could describe 
one could describe them, one wouldn't describe themselves as an atheist without a theist but but that term would still apply to people imagine a world where no one believes in god regardless of whether or not a god exists in that world everyone is an atheist no no one would describe themselves as that but that's that is again a, a matter of linguistics but they would all be atheists they would all believe or, or they wouldn't they would all believe that there isn't a god presumably it would not fit into their worldview um, but that but, would be a, that would be kind of a position from ignorance of the notion so for example so for example if we were to say that god an ought not implies an ought i'm simply making the claim that in order for something to be evil and not ignorant, one has to presuppose that something is indeed evil and hold it against the, that standard. So, okay. for example, so for example, if an animal comes into your home and manages to destroy and ruin everything, that animal doesn't really grasp the concept of property, ownership, uh, the what it's doing to the family in question. All it knows is it's in a house and, and it's acting up. It's It's a very... It's a creature very ignorant of these things, but to have someone who's going into your house knowing that uh, such a thing is against the law, knowing that he could hurt he or she could hurt somebody, uh, knowing that uh, they they are doing damage, they are aware of something and they are and they are transgressing that. That is the that is the point I'm let me, to make here. Okay, let me elaborate this 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 world a little bit for you. Um, well, actually, let's let, never mind. Let's leave leave, leave the atheism aside. Um, I will I'll let let me, for the sake of argument, argue for the metaphysical evil, um, and compare it to the metaphysical good. I don't. I I'm not, for the record. Uh, I, I I'm a virtue ethicist, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, or not a virtue ethicist, but someone that believes in virtue ethics. Uh, and so I wouldn't I wouldn't argue for an absolute good. Um, I would argue that there are some things that are necessarily virtuous, but only things like self-consistency. All right. Um, okay. Well, but, I mean, but, sorry, we're getting off track here. But, yeah, but absolutely. I mean, we got to get back to the God here, right? I mean, that's that's what we're missing well, out about. We're talking about good and a virtue, and I, I I understand it. It's that's an interesting uh, point, though. But I let's 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 uh, talk about um, you know, I I think uh, what does Philo say that that even if we could, you know, that if we're if we're to say that it's all infinite power and goodness of the deity, um. And even if we could prove that that infinite power and goodness are compatible with the misery and pain that man is is uh, is allowed, even if we could prove that that is compatible, we wouldn't necessarily be proving that um, that the deity either wanted it or didn't want it, right? I mean, because it it seems like we have to prove that the that the two things are mixed or unmixed, right? I mean, we have to prove that it's happening. Just because of this one thing, and not uh, a bunch of different, uh, uh, what am I looking for? A bunch of different variables that are that are affecting um, the misery and, and pain of, of mankind. Um, I think he says uh, that um, a mere poss a mere possible compatibility is not sufficient. You must prove these pure, unmixed, and uncontrolled attributes from the present mixed and confused phenomena, and from these alone, a hopeful undertaking. Were the phenomena ever so pure and unmixed, yet being finite, they would be insufficient for that purpose. How much more when they are so jarring and discordant? Um, it's it's an interesting uh, an interesting point that it's sort of, it, I mean, also sort of the idea that um, that Demia and Philo seem to be really proposing that it's, that it's, um, that there's, there's this sort of incomprehensibility that makes, um, Attributing attributes to the deity very difficult, right? I think that's I think that's along the same lines as, as pretty much all the other arguments. Um, 
very similar. You know, uh, pointing out the the dissimilarities as as a way to disprove the analogies. That is a terrific. Yeah, I would uh, definitely agree with the, that notion, uh, because usually the attributes of God come through religious means, and the and by having religious means, you come to know the nature of of the deity you are worshiping. Whereas if you try to just try to describe it in pure philosophical terms, then as such as what you are doing, you have a greater onus to prove that through reason, deduction, and observation that such a deity has said properties in which you describe that you come beforehand through the religious belief or tradition. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. You know, and uh, it's, I think this is sort of coming to the end of this part here, and it, you know, it, it talks about um, how um, Philo seems to be, you know, pointing to the idea that you know it's you can't really infer moral attributes and uh, infinite power attributes, right? It's sort of it's it's this it's this odd idea that that you know that the moral attributes um, probably aren't going to be able to we aren't going to be able to discern which ones are are the ones of the that the deity endorses and which ones aren't? I think is the is the big problem, right? Mm-hmm. That definitely. No, I would uh, definitely agree with that one. Uh, so, for example, in terms of the deity being infinite, uh, one would have to pre- presuppose that because because uh, you, you're well, you're 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 pointing it out from a finite point of view, first mm-hmm. of all. Um, exactly. Whereas, whereas the moral comprehension. Now, that one is less obvious to us because you need to have an onus of proof of why this deity needs to be uh, good as opposed to indifferent or evil. Uh, a god couldn't really be finite because to presuppose a finite god would be to suppose it had a cause for its existence or an origin point, which just makes it superfluous. Wait, wait, though, why, why though? What, what do you mean? What, how are you using the word finite in this case? Finite in duration or finite in power? Duration. Okay, okay. But but the finite in duration or infinite in duration does that necessarily imply infinite in power? Not sure. I would mull that one over too much. If he is the primary source of all things, then he is the primary power of. Well, consider this though. I would agree that infinite power would at least mean the potential for infinite existence. But I don't think that infinite existence implies infinite power. No, if if not. creation is finite, then the creative power need not be anything other than finite. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Can't disagree with that. Cart before the horse and all that. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. So yeah, right into part eleven, I guess. Um, it, it's sort of building on the back of of the idea of human misery. Um, <laughs> the, building on the back of you in misery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, that's sort of an interesting analogy or a way of way of putting it. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's uh, it, he he starts to talk about you know um, that you know how do we how do we suppose that this workmanship that we see around us is the contrivance of an all powerful. Uh, architect, right? I mean, um, he—it's—it's it's like he's kind of coming back to the idea of, of design, and that, and that, that um, you know, we talk about about uh, you know, even if oh, what does he say that um, even if we let's see here, even if we um, but supposing the author of nature to be finitely perfect, though far exceeding mankind, a satisfactory account may be given 
of natural and moral evil, and every untoward phenomenon be explained and adjusted. A less evil may then be chosen, be chosen in order to avoid a greater evil. Um, inconveniences be submitted to in order to reach a desirable end. And in a word, benevolence regulated by wisdom and limited by necessity may produce such a world as the present. Um, it, that's an interesting. That's an interesting um, concept, actually. And I've heard uh, William Lane Craig actually use a similar argument. Um, and this this one's used by Cleanthes here. Um, so it's 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 along kind of a, a similar lines, right? Um, that um, you know, it, when we're talking about the the human misery and why we see what we see today, it is possible that um, this is the only possible world that could have been created, right? Um, that this is, in fact, and I, I think you were kind of getting into that, Gibran, that this, this may, in fact, be the greatest of all possible worlds. Like, there may not be a way of getting better without further ill consequences. Or getting uh, it, yeah, well, I mean, uh, removing human misery by, by better, I mean, removing human misery, which, which I would consider better, but. Sure, sure, yeah, no, I, uh, and I, yeah, I think that is, um, I mean, it's possible, um, and, and it's also quite possible, one could argue, regardless of whether or not this is the best of all possible worlds, one could argue that it is the, it is actually the only possible world. One might be able to argue that. It might be the case that this is the only possible world, and so there would be, to say, oh, what if it was? Well, no, it, it, it literally could not have been. It's possible that for, for even non-religious reasons, potentially at least, I'm not, I'm not arguing this is the case, but, but it may be the case that this is logically necessary. Everything that exists logic, by logical necessity exists. And so we could not even imagine a different world. So it would also, at that, in that case, be both the best world and the worst world. In yeah. such a yeah, also you have to think, also uh, the target of what you want is also going to dictate about what you can do. For example, if someone wants to build, if God wanted to make a possible world, wherein a green box existed, that world necessitates the color green exists in said world. Uh, you can't have it, uh, you can't really have it both ways on this one. So if, so if the, uh, so if Cleanthes uh, could come up, or Demia could come up with a world wherein something exists, needs, makes it better than not, and it presupposes having an evil second hand or lesser, then it's going to need to be brought up. Hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, you know, um, yeah, and it, it's 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 interesting. Uh, Philo brings up, you know, as as an argument against that, um, bringing someone into the world who, you know, if someone went, came in, if you brought someone into the world who had already presupposed that there was that it was the result of workmanship. Um, it, just looking around may not be enough to um, dissuade them of the idea that it's made by workmanship, right? I mean, if you if you were convinced that the house is built by or been designed by an architect, um, I, yeah, I think I think you know even no matter how poorly the house uh, was designed, you would still say there was an architect, you know. Um, I think in that way, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't lose the idea that there's a being. But he says, you know, um, but supposing uh, 
which is the real case that this man is not antecedently convinced of the supreme intelligent, benevolent, and powerful, but is left to gather such a belief from the appearance of things, this entirely alters the case, uh, and nor will he ever find any reason to force such a conclusion. He may be fully convinced of the narrow limits of his understanding, but this will not help him in forming the inference concerning the goodness or superior power, since he must form that inference from that from what he knows and not from what he is ignorant of. Um, I really like that line, actually. That um, you know, that we're we're we 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 form our opinion based on on the knowledge we have and not um, not a not a lack of knowledge. Um, and I think that's that's a, a valuable way of looking at it, anyways. Because um, I think uh, I think sometimes we do base um, a little bit of what we what we pretend to know with what um, with the pieces of ignorance that we've kind of narrowed, right? Um, you know, it's it's and it's uh and he you know it's it's weird because he's he's admitting that um that even with our narrow comprehension we still have to kind of go off of what we can observe. Um, I'm not sure if that's uh entirely accurate. Uh, no, I think you're no, I think that is uh, getting close to the crux of the argument because it's also not about having it. Uh, it's also not about being okay with merely being ignorant of the fact you want to know you're you're driving towards this, and you're supposed to give somebody a reasonable enough justification for that belief, and if you just say you should just accept your ignorance, then that is something that is just persuading the other person into uh, shying away from the question rather than just working towards it. Now, granted, it might just be that by accepting your one's ignorance of the whole notion, you are, in a sense... Uh, allowing for mystery, but at the same time, it's not something that everyone's going to everyone's going to be so eager to do. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, it's, it's kind of weird though. I mean, because I think that the value in mystery is as uh, a, a a form of anxiety that's going to compel you to solve that mystery, right? I think that's where the value in mystery really is. That um, I think sustained mystery can be kind of hard on a person, maybe. Agreed. Like I, I know those, I know those cops who have those like thirty-year cold cases or whatever. I know that's that's really tough on them, right? Because you know they've they thought a lot about it, and uh, especially if they felt like they were getting close to solving it, but never did. I'm sure that would be just really frustrating. Mm. I I could gather that too. Yeah. Especially for someone like a philosopher, especially as somebody uh, who's eager to get to the truth or to the bottom of things, like. Uh, Hume, for him, it's not going to do. Uh, he needs to have some kind of underpinning in which to uh, carry that. Carry that, uh, especially if you're a skeptic who's, uh, especially if you're a skeptic who's persistent on uh, questioning uh, what people are holding or just accepting as being dear. He's he wants to build up. He wants to. Build up a case where you could actually have secure knowledge, not necessarily be okay with the sh a shaky knowledge or a knowledge that you just have to be okay with. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, he, he says, you know, you are therefore obl obliged, therefore, to reason with him merely from the known phenomena and to drop uh, arbitrary supposition and con conjecture, right? Um, and I think that's, I think that's really good. I like, I like that attitude. Um, that you know, that you, you really should try to. Move from from what you know and to answer what you don't know, right? Um, I think I think adding mystery into the your answer can be um, 
a, a surefire sign that you've probably missing something or, or don't have a complete answer anyways. Yeah, at least if you can say, at least if you can say, uh, I don't know, but I think there's an answer. At least there's a bit of humility being admitted in that. Uh, but to limit that from any sort of inquiry, that's something all to, that's something very different altogether. Cool, cool. Well, I mean, uh, next into it, I mean, he goes into the idea of, or he, the analogy of a house um, or apartment, or he says a house or a palace. Um, and he, he talks about, um, you know, if if there was a source of noise or confusion, if, if a part of the design was, I, I think this is in uh, paragraph 190. So um, it, he, he's talking about, you know, the part of the design where, um, uh, you know, it would cause noise or confusion, darkness, extremes of heat or cold, um, you would blame the contrivance and uh, without any further examination, right? Um, you don't you don't need to find the cause necessarily of the problem, right? Um, I think he's what he's saying, and and you could you can blame what does he say? You know, it, you can you can assert in general that if the architect had had any skill and good intentions, he might have formed of such a plan of the whole, and it might have adjusted the parts in such a manner as would have remedied all or most of these inconveniences. Um, and so I think that's I think that's an accurate uh, analogy, right? Um, it it works in all the right places. Uh, that's yeah. Because especially if you're attacking a natural the a natural kind of theology. Uh, as such a supreme intelligence with an infinite amount of resources would have had no limitations. Uh, for example, if uh, one could understand if you were going to the woods and you were in a cabin that, okay, there's leaks coming from the roof, it's a bit drafty in here, but you know what? This cabin was made 300 years ago. All they had was wood found here in the forest. Uh, chances are it, they can have been too good at constructing it, so I'll understand even though I'm kind of miserable. I'll, I'll put up with it, but in terms of applying to a creator who had such infinite resources, you're kind of scratching your head about how such a thing could have come to fruition, and that is where the beauty of this argument lays, especially in terms of comparing a god to a to an architect earlier on within within the dialogue, because you're just taking a, you're just taking the notion flipping on its head, which works out fairly well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it does kind of point out that that analogy sort of does sort of point to God being a little bit incompetent in his design, right? Um, or, or at least that's how the analogy kind of places it. And I, you know, I think when, when I read it, I was like, oh yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. But I, I, the more I thought about it, I was thinking, you know, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, I don't think you can necessarily, I mean, just like Philo's main objection, I mean, you can't necessarily compare the construction of a house or a palace to the construction of a universe, right? It's sort of, they, they, the two main, like, they, they're very different in their goals, clearly, and their, you know, um, and, and in their, their methods. So it, it doesn't necessarily match up exactly, uh, you know. Um, but, I mean, he does point out that, you know, his ignorance or even your own ignorance of such a plan will never convince, convince you of the impossibility of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, that, that, it seems designed, and you know, uh, you you are you have experience of it as things as being designed like that. Um, and so, you know, even if it appears poorly designed, you wouldn't necessarily assume that it didn't not it had no architect. Um, you wouldn't you wouldn't make that assumption to to say that there was no architect, but you may say that the architect was. Uh, in, uh, incompetent, or or at least ill-informed, or ignorant of of 
of the uh, the necessary knowledge he would have needed. Exactly. Uh, either uh, it's a if you're not if you can't use it to uh, attack the architect itself, the notion of the architect, then you can at least use it to attack the other person's conception of the architect. Uh, for example, you could have a notion of a deity who's like the Gnostic demiurge, uh, a deity who who's miserable, who's who constructs things, but in a sense constructs them to be imperfect or to, uh, through his own ignorance or through his own evil. And that's a, and that kind of a, and although you could presuppose that there's a higher being than him who just is, who's not paying attention, that kind of uh, demiurgical being is they're creating um, is creating such a such a structure, and one has to wonder: is that a being who's closer in property to what we're observing, or it, or is it truly supposed to be? Um, or is it truly supposed to be a god who is all loving, all wise, and all powerful, directly doing this? And that's where uh, the conflict is laying. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, um, it, since he kind of went into that that argument about, um, you know, maybe this is the 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 only possible world that could be could be um could be made. Um, you know, he talks about um the idea that um it doesn't seem like plausible that um, human misery, or wait a second, um, that uh, that with regard to the cause of all evil and the circumstances on which it depends, uh, none of them appear to human reason in the least degree necessary or unavoidable, and nor can we suppose them such without the most utmost license of imagination. Right? Um, he, he's talking about um, that that all these human miseries may not be, you know, how can we say that they're, that that's a necessary thing, you know, that that's the only possible way that it could be. Um, it doesn't seem to follow from what we know about life, that's for sure. Very much. Yeah, because, I mean, he talks about, you know, that, um, you know, evil is, is fine and that, um, you know, that it, it's it's all right to talk about, you know, evil as being suffering and stuff, but why does why does suffering have to entail pain? You know, why does it entail um, this 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 uh, this feeling that seems so agonist, right? I mean, couldn't the same tech or, you know, the same goal be met by having a diminution of pleasure instead of uh, a uh, an increase of pain? Yeah, yeah. Arguments from evil are never necessary. Usually, people who argue from evil to have, or have an understanding of the argument usually just tend to limit it to evil and God, just any antidote of evil. But it could also be the quantity of evil. Like one can argue, okay, evil could exist, and I agree that it exists for that purpose you're outlaying. But why is it such that we have so many? Why couldn't God have created a world with half as much diseases or half as much deaths or or even 5% less? You can cut and quantify. Uh, you can measure evil in various different ways and construct various different arguments. And that is a, and that is a kind of what Hume is expanding on from uh, the original argument, which is why is there any evil to why is there evil in such a manner and why is there so much of it, or why do we have such a quality of it? Hmm. You could you could also have an evil. You could also imagine possible worlds where, um, for example, people themselves uh, never 
get into really horrible accidents like uh, sex trafficking uh, so, or rape uh, where other evils exist, but those two specific ones do not. So there's a variety of ways in which you can take the argument after the initial any evil at all. Yeah, I mean it's 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 interesting. He goes into the you know the idea of um you know uh, if an animal can be free from pain for an hour, uh, couldn't they enjoy a perpetual perpetual exemption from it? You know, like it, it man can um how does he say it? Um, if you know if a man can be men pursue pleasure as eagerly as they avoid pain and. Uh, it, it seems plainly possible to carry on the business of life without pain, he says. Um, so it seems like it seems like the idea that that it might be necessary is sort of um, it disproved in that fact, right? I mean, he talks about the idea that it, we require certain organs to feel pain, and you know, if if those organs are necessary, then why are they necessary, right? I mean, couldn't we exist without that that sensation? Um, it's an interesting idea. I, I kind of thought about it. Um, it is it possible that I mean pain is just the opposite? You know, pain is the signal that we are feeling, but it it's not necessarily um, entails suffering. Uh, it's true. For some, there's a certain little uh, subgroup that actually finds pain to be a very stimulating and positive thing. I'm, I know it's not everybody, and it's really relegated to certain people with certain fetishes. But oh, you're talking to one of them, actually. I'm a, I'm a bit of a, a bit of a masochist myself. Um, All but, right, there you go. Yeah, so I mean, I think so that, you've I think answered I, your own question then. <laughs> I think that's why I'm why I'm asking the question. You know, I don't think that that pain um, is necessarily uh, exactly equal to suffering uh, in that in that sense. And so I, I don't necessarily see. I think that's I think that was your kind of objection, Gibran. That I mean, he sort of does equivocate between suffering. And pain and, and yeah. pleasure and and happiness, right? Also, um, I actually think the worst. I, thing... I, I'd like to say something. Um, thank you. to quote uh, to paraphrase Bill Nye. Uh, thank you, John. I learned something. <laughs> so, so I just well, you might you might have just learned what you can uh, what you can do to me and what I might feel about it. I guess. Okay, people, you know how not to hurt John. <laughs> yeah. Or, um. Okay, so actually, yeah, my objection is um, maybe a bit, a bit different than that. Um, I don't think he would agree that pain is equal to uh, evil. What I was actually saying, though, is that he was he was equivocating uh, the attributes of good with the attributes of pleasure and the attributes of evil with the attributes of pain. So when he's talking about how how pain um, is so so. Sorry, um, gets worse the more you experience it. Whereas pleasure, it, it dims. You you get a dimmed experience of pleasure, um, and he seems to be implying that that is true of of, of good and evil as a whole. Uh, but you would have to make the argument, the connection between pain and evil, for the argument to really make any sense. Also, um, also there's the notion of pain as uh, pain being uh, positive in the, in the sense that it helps you understand that hey something's happening to your body uh, uh, for if you're if your uh, kidney if you have an appendix that's about to burst then that rush of pain is there to help you realize hey there's a crucial part of me that's about to hurt the rest of myself uh, or you could 
or uh, yeah, step that's or, cutting your, or losing or yeah. when you cut yourself, losing blood is a signal that uh, your body's also in danger. Not to mention the fact that emotion. Sometimes some people could argue the opposite, where emotion is the worst kind of pain. Uh, C, uh, Louis C.K. has a brilliant bit about how women are women as a whole hurt you more than men because a man will will come across the river, rip your arm off, and start beating you with it. But he leaves you as a person intact. He, whereas a woman can come, mess up your psychology, destroy the innermost image of yourself, and then leave you a broken and bitter person for the rest of your life. And uh, Emotional pain does have that kind of traverse effect. And I think, and for my money, I would have gone in that direction as opposed to the whole physical notion of, of uh, painfulness. I think it's much, much harder, though, to argue that um, emotional pain is more abundant than emotional happiness than it yeah. is to argue that pain is more abundant than pleasure. Uh, it's just a far more challenging argument to make. Um, but yes, I agree. I think that that would have been a more sensible place to go as well. Um, I like it that you're, you you quote a combination of like ancient philosophers and comedians. Uh, <laughs> it's quite amusing. Uh, it's, a, it's a nice juxtaposition. Uh, and at least I'm familiar with the comedians. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big I'm a big fan of Carlin actually. Yeah, me um, too. No man, I was a huge fan in high school. Cool. <laughs> Are you saying we're immature? <laughs> yeah, I I've just uh, when you watch I've watched all his bits uh, a while back ago, and I might come to a few of them now and again, but I was like super obsessed with Carlin. <laughs> I even bought uh, his book Bird Droppings. Uh, oh boy. Um. Okay, to get back on topic, though, uh, before we, we, we lose everybody, um, uh, the, this, this problem, the, the, the problem of evil, though, it's, I, I don't think it's, it's convincing, um, mostly because, I mean, A, you could, you could give the mystic response that, that God is good in a way that we cannot conceive of, or you could give the much, I would argue, even simpler skeptical response of just saying, I don't accept your premise that there is more evil than than good. Um, I think that there are too many there are too many assumptions that that both parties bring into the argument about what good and evil is. Uh, well, good and evil are actually, uh, and and what what those things lead to. Um, and I think that that kind of makes it just a pointless argument. That's why I personally don't. I've, I don't think I've, I've ever used the argument of evil against a theist, and I, I will never do so unless somehow I like find a really, really good formulation of it. And I mean, this is a, a relatively good formulation of it. It's very sophisticated in a number of ways. Hume does an excellent job of explaining what he means. I still disagree with him, though. I don't think it's a good argument in the end. Uh, I think it's a, a better version than a lot, but it, 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 atheists... This is a bad argument. Please don't use it. <laughs> it's just. Yeah. I mean, there's. Uh, the, he he goes into some very some very interesting uh, examples of of the argument from evil, and uh, you know, it's it's not entirely clear sometimes when he's going through it exactly where he's going with it. Um, in one of them, he talks about um one of the ones that kind of caught me was um that you know we talk about good and and evil um but a lot of times we can talk about the same thing. And and it just it'll be evil in one sense, uh, and in one context, and then not evil in the next. Like I think he uses the the concept of wind and rain, right? Um, that wind is used is useful to push ships around in that day and age, um, and uh, and you know it seemed and it moved the mists around e 
as as he as he says. Um, and you know, rains are are good for for crops, and we need them to survive. And yet, too much and extremes of either of those things are uh, cause misery and pain and uh, and and all sorts of problems for mankind, right? And so, in that way, I mean, we we talk about the the idea of contrivance and and you know, is this is this world designed for mankind? And yet, it seems like these things have both good and bad in them. Um, that that they that they in each of them contain the possibility to be used for good and bad, and, and isn't that a more likely analogy to the to the deity himself? Um, that that he he may contain. I think I think he does actually talk about um, that. There's that there's four possibilities that the 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 deity is good, bad, or what does he say? Um, malevolent or no, perfect goodness or perfect malice or both good and goodness and malice or neither goodness nor malice. Um, and I think, I think that's I think that's an interesting way of looking at uh, the idea of the deity, right? And I think that we can we can safely eliminate the first two, right? It doesn't seem that this world is because of, because of the, the the contextual nature of goodness. I think it doesn't seem like the world itself is is filled with either good or bad. It seems like it's either both or neither. Um, what what would you guys say to that? I think that delves really much into the whole notion of what does it mean to be good, and uh, of course we did a whole uh, review on uh, the youth pro dilemma with regards to that topic or possible answers. I still don't know what it what it is, but yeah. <laughs> and but that does raise a pretty interesting question in terms of how do we relate God to goodness or evil? How do, even so, how do we know that there is such a thing as goodness or evil to even be applied to God? How do we know it's just not a construct of human of a human byproduct and understanding? Uh, Hume, argue, tried, Hume has argued uh, one cannot derive an ought from an is. That's which remains to be a big problem in moral philosophy. That uh, think ethicists and uh, in that discipline uh, try to get around or embrace and try to and try to argue from. But what Hume did, but for Hume's own position, he accepted a notion that. Even though it's hard to derive an ought from an is, we kind of experience morality as being something we as human beings care about and wish to uphold, and that for us is is a good enough recognition on why we should treat it as something to to be thought of. So with regards, because when we're discussing goodness or evilness in relation to God, we think we have a pure grasp on what that means, but... That's something we should remain skeptical about in term before uh, progressing forward. And <laughs> yeah, and to me, and I think that's where the crux of Hume's argument is coming from here: the fact that we shouldn't assume such things or assume to know such things, especially if we're coming out from nat uh, natural philosophy, but rather we must uh, think and scrutinize before coming up to this judgment. Yeah, definitely, and I think uh, you know, um, there's, uh, you know, Philo even seems sort of um, like sympathetic to their their position there, um, that you know that they, uh, what does he say? You know, blame not so much the ignorance of these rev reverend gentlemen; they know how to change their style with the times. Formerly, it was popular, it was popular theological topic to maintain that life was vanity and misery, and to exaggerate all the ills and pains which are incident to men. But of late years, divines, we find, begin to retract this position and maintain, though still with some hesitation, that there are more goods than evils, more pleasures than pains, and even in this life. Uh, when religion stood entirely upon temper and education, it was thought proper to encourage melancholy. 
uh, as indeed mankind never has recourse to superior powers so readily as in that disposition. Um, I think uh, it's it's an interesting idea that you know that um, it, it's 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 almost like optimism versus pessimism in my in my mind when he when he kind of lays it out like that. Um, you know, this idea that there's more good than evil seems to be a very optimistic uh, point of view. And then uh, he kind of goes, you know, when we're talking about pain and misery of life, that doesn't seem much more like a pessimistic point of view. So I, I don't know, is that, is that really what he's getting at here? Or is that, or am I just kind of picking up something that's in in the argument itself? Um, what I would argue, at least is that the conclusion to that question is a matter of optimism or pessimism. Um, that, that someone uh, with a more cynical worldview would probably end up concluding that there are more ills than goods, and that an optimist would either conclude that there are more goods than ills, or that at least that, the, the, um, that, that, that somehow the goods outweigh the ills, even if not in quantity, but in some sense, in some respect. Um, but I, yeah, I, I think um, the reason that I wouldn't say we could rule out a god that is completely good or completely bad is because we don't know if it is possible to, for there to be a completely bad or completely good world. So based on the evidence that there appears to be some good and some bad, I don't think from that evidence we can conclude that there isn't a supremely good being uh, or that there isn't a supremely bad being. Um, but I would say that if there is some sort of creator that I think that it is far more likely that such a being is either apathetic or morally complicated rather than, than just um, purely good or evil. Hmm. That, that does seem like the more reasonable uh, opportunity. Uh, it seems seems more likely to me, anyway. Yeah. I mean, couldn't it be argued that, the, um, you know, that, that an all-good being would be required to in, intercede in in something that could be considered misery to a human, wouldn't it? Um, only if the being could, and only if the being considered human misery to be mm. worth intervening for. And consider this, we exist in such a tiny, um, a tiny sliver of, of the world's history so far, that it could be the fact that, that humanity could, in a few hundred years, discover some way to be in constant pleasure all the time, and, and we would have in a sense, heaven on earth, uh, and in that case, not interv uh, intervening to help our ills now might make it so that we don't reach that 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 pure uh, world of, of absolute pleasure, that that literal heaven, or pretty much literal heaven on earth. So, so by not intervening now, um, the this being could be creating the greatest possible happiness in the future. I could, I would, that that, that is a, a possibility. I would say. Yeah, that's interesting too. So, so in that sense, yeah, that's that's I think why we cannot conclude anything, at least not from this very brief period of time that we've we're, we're judging whether or not there are good rails. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I think I think that's where kind of Cleanthes sort of um, that's his big problem with this whole argument, isn't it? That I mean, he says you know it, it, that it's sort of you know to build to build sort of an argument on top of these suppositions and, and to build it on these these assumptions that we're making about what would be good or would be bad is, is kind of building in the air, isn't it? I mean, like, it's hard to... We're not really grounding it in anything that's that's we can really point to or demonstrate. And I think there, there is an issue with that, um, at least as far as convincing uh, people who, who, uh, who are looking for to be reasonably convinced. Um, and cool. So I think we're kind of coming up to the end of part 
11 here. We didn't even get into part 12. Um, I don't know. What do you What do you think? I, do we need another one of these uh, to to bring it all together? I mean, I know we were we were way off on a lot of tangents, and uh, it it may be uh, useful to kind of bring some of these tangents back into because um, I know it, it, uh, chapter twelve, part twelve, is very um, it it sort of does kind of rehash a lot of the arguments that um, have come before. Um, and not not rehash, but I think it it reiterates a few of the points and uh, and kind of runs back into the idea of of design and and the the argument a priori and all that. Um, if I might make a suggestion, John, I think it would be best to leave it for another. We I think it should be best to leave it for the last for a fourth podcast. That way, not only we could summarize the twelfth chapter, but we could also gather our thoughts and our individual outcomes of where we've been taken after reading the dialogue itself. That Definitely. We share our individual impression, share a nice summary, share and, where... And we perhaps, I mean, I think, I think it would be good to find maybe some of your guys' own favorite quotes of the dialogue. I mean, there's a couple in here that I found were just just zingers and, like, really, like, some of them really hit me and, I like, some of them I thought for other people that I've dealt with and there's, you know, I think there's, there's a ton of them in there that just, you know, if you were to really go through this dialogue and, and really kind of get into the some of the some of the just the language that he uses you could you could find like a lot of interesting ways of of conducting a dialogue with a person you know um and even just ways of putting the question or or kind of stating stating your premises in a way that uh, is very open to dialogue i think i think there's a lot in in here that way sounds good to me yeah absolutely i think i think we could do a, a concluding episode maybe we can get elijah in on that yeah, absolutely. And I was, you know, I was going to ask you guys, like, do you maybe feel comfortable with this last one since it is just a single part, and uh, since it is sort of an overall kind of, we're going to go over a little bit of the overall um, document. Do you think we could maybe open it up to a few people? Um, and I, w- I was curious, you know, maybe just to just to ask anybody who's who's watching this um, afterwards, you know, if if you did have any uh, desire to kind of get in on the conversation a little bit. I mean, I think I would be open to maybe like opening it up a little bit uh, towards the end of the of the program and just and really getting in some nice um, back and forth and some dis- different perspectives if we could because I, I know there's a lot of expertise out there that we're we're probably losing out on um, by not maximizing our hangouts but at, at the same time um, in the effort to keep the the cast moving uh, I guess I guess we kind of have have limited our panels to to three or four if we can so yeah no I think that would be a great idea uh, I'd be happy to hear what people uh, think on this we did this dialogue in particular covers so much ground that I'm sure there's some really interesting um, opinions uh, that people have about it absolutely I mean I even when we went through it I mean even when we were going through each topic uh, I, I still felt like there were there were certain parts that we were kind of skipping over um, it, it not necessarily on purpose but it, it just in, in the in the effort of time I think is is what we were really looking for trying to get to the main points but I think there are some really small little things in here that um, you know you could really get a lot of ground out of if you if you were to really delve into them so absolutely yeah no I agree Cool, guys. Well, with that, I think we're coming up to the uh, almost to the two-hour mark. Did you guys have anything else you wanted to add about this dialogue, or um, anything, uh, any any sort of interesting directions you were hoping to take it on the next uh, the next meeting we have? I'm not sure whether where I want to take it myself, but so far my own opinions of the dialogue have been positive. It's been really refreshing you know, to see some to see uh, David Hume tackle directly notions of natural religion as opposed to uh, 
some of his more general work in philosophy, and I think he does a pretty decent job of coveraging all the other points and uh, putting them into one work, uh, giving a general consensus of uh, three uh, popular views on the subject. So I think Hume does a terrific job in that. I think he does a great summary. I think he, for its time, it's a terrific piece of work, and I think it is definitely worth uh, a look for anyone who's interested in the topics of religion, philosophy, or theology to have a quick uh, layover of some of the problems, some of the problems and solutions people are suggesting nowadays. Yeah, and, and uh, I'd also like to say, even if you're not exceptionally interested in theology uh, or, or philosophy, it's an interesting historical piece, and it's very well written. And so if you read it for a reason even other than a philosophical interest or a theological interest, it's just a, it's just a, it's just a good read in general. It's a well-written piece. Uh, if you really uh, dislike philosophy, read it as sort of um, a, a drama. Um, Almost because the, the the there's there's some interesting historical conflicts kind of expressed through the characters. So I would I'd recommend it for an even broader audience. So I would I would second your recommendation, uh, Eddie. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think I think this is like one of the more one of the more uh, amazing dialogues I've I've read, um, and I think it's one of the better works by Hume that I've that I've read. Um, although I'm definitely not very well read in Hume. Um, I, I think you know I think what really caught me the most about it is I mean he he's really here attempting to cover every argument um, that he's heard. You know, it seems like he's, he's really working hard to get to every single uh, objection and, and argument that he could possibly um, gather, right? And I think, I think that sort of, you know, just that effort that he puts into it is, is really, it's almost just inspiring, um, you know, to see that, that level of dedication. Um, and I know this work took him a long time, but I think it's, I think it's very, it's useful because it, it it can be a shortcut to thinking these things out for yourself, right? I mean, um, I know me coming out of a fundamentalist uh, household. I mean, I heard a lot of these arguments from the other side, and uh, I've never heard, I never heard the rebuttals. Um, and I think when you when you kind of put them side by side, um, I think the whole thing looks a lot less skewed. Um, and you know, when I when I came out of religion, I kind of had to think these things. Uh, you know, think of reasons why this, these arguments weren't good on my own, right? Um, in order to satisfy the cognitive dissonance in, within myself, right? Um, so I think, I think this dialogue, if, you know, anybody who's struggling and coming out of that sort of, uh, that place, I think they'll find it really useful in sort of getting to a place where you can kind of tackle these arguments and, and tackle these reasonings um, and, without, you know, feeling so overwhelmed by them. And for all you... And for all you uh, aspiring young Christian or even Muslim or generally theistic apologists out there, I would also encourage you to pick up this book because a lot of the arguments you might be hearing, trust me, if someone has not thought of it, if uh, you think people are just thinking about this, there's a good chance Hume thought of it way beforehand. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think I think for both sides, it's really a, quite a quite a great document, right? I mean, he he really does lay out both sides very well. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I think with that we can uh, we can end the broadcast. Thank you so much, guys. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I guess at this point, I mean, we're going to do another one next. Uh, do you guys want to make it next Wednesday? Is that, that sound all right with you guys? Um, uh, my, Tuesday uh, Tuesday is a little bit busy for me, but I can uh, I can try to make it uh, make it Tuesday also. We can do Wednesday. It depends on how much you're dedicated to like regularity. Does do do Wednesdays generally work better for you or Tuesday? Um, it, at this point, it looks like they may. 
but like like I said, I mean, I can always rearrange things. Um, there is. I'm, hey, if it's uh, all the same to you, I'm good for Wednesday. Cool, guys. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll I'll let you I'll let you know, and I'll try to put a, a notification out a little bit earlier this time. But but for now, let's let's try for for Wednesday, and uh, and if if that if that is not going to happen, then I'll 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 let you guys know. All right, excellent. Yeah, no, I'm 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 totally game for Wednesday. The only thing I'd be worried about is uh, regularity. So. You got it. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm trying to be as regular as possible, but I it, there's also the the idea of you know picking the right day. I want to pick a pick sure. a good day, and I I think if you know, it, it seems like Wednesday might be a little bit more available for people, so it's... Oh, and as know. everyone who's been following this podcast knows, the Theotetus discussion still hasn't happened. Um, yep. we just and, and it's not going to happen until the 21st. Uh, and the reason for that is I have uh, a lot of scholarships that I'm working on. I got into college, and now I have to pay for it, and college is ridiculously expensive now. So I've been kind of scrambling, and I really... I don't have the mental energy to focus on, on that and hosting one of these. Um, and as you saw here, I'm pretty tired. I don't have much energy to participate, let alone host. So they will hopefully be returning if, if we can find... Uh, they might not be the Friday uh, episodes anymore. They might be another day. But, but we're, I'm going to try to host them uh, alongside John, one a week. Um, and, uh, yeah, hopefully that will happen. Sorry, uh, but, yeah. Totally. Well, we better get on that before some other uh, podcast scoops up Theotetus and does a discussion on it. <laughs> like, like that's likely to happen. Right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, lots of competition here in this business. Yeah, totally. And our one viewer is going to see that comment and do his own. <laughs> yeah, that's it. He's starting his own right now. Uh, oh, well, he's, he's got a lot of work ahead of him. That is a giant uh, document, believe me. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty big. Uh, cool. Well, I think uh, I think with that, boys, we should uh, we should bring it off air, and um, I'll be happy to chat with you afterwards. Thanks, dudes. Bye. Say goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.